Hi, this is Giuseppe. Hi, this is Anthony. And you're listening to For the Love of Sophia. A philosophy podcast brought to you by the Public Philosophy Project. If you have any questions or suggestions, feel free to email us at publicphilproject at gmail.com. Enjoy the ride. Welcome back to part two of this very interesting episode. The interesting, maddening, hair splitting. <laughs> well, but that sometimes we need more of those. That's true. Otherwise, so, otherwise, you guys think we just do nothing. That's this, true. We maybe. deal with these difficult things instead, people. Maybe you still think we're doing nothing. <laughs> <laughs> maybe even more now. Yes. So, at the end of the last episode, you you mentioned this interesting thing about how, in a sense, this is like hyper rational. Yeah. And I thought that was interesting because there's also a sense in which it's hyper-empirical. True. Not in the sense of the empirical sciences presupposing that things exist outside of our experience of them, but in the sense that it's like literally examining the thing that you experience. Yes. So in this weird way, it's both hyper-rational and hyper-empirical, but in a sense that's different from the traditions. And putting them together. And that's another way where I think there's a Kant similarity because mm-hmm. he does another thing. Um, you, you brought up this thing about like not caring about anything. Yeah. And I think we should probably unpack that a little bit because maybe it does seem like that. Yeah. And it's important to emphasize that when, when you know, Husserl or whoever is doing this kind of thing, they're not saying you need to take an apathetic stand with regard to life. Mm-hmm. In like a practical sense. He's just saying, you know, in the same way that when you're doing a science experiment, you have to kind of leave your biases at the door and like just really figure out what the method is and what's going on. This is what you have to do in order to do this method. Mm. Easy advocating for us to kind of take the view from nowhere then? Because huh. that's what the experiment is, right? It is happening. Yeah, yeah. I'm not interfering. That's a good question. I think that's the natural question. And the response he would give is, there is no such thing as the view from nowhere, right? And this Mm -hmm. is one of the insights that phenomenology gives us. But it's the closest to a view (laughs) from nowhere which we can get. Hmm. Because he's very big on like this idea that perspective exists. And you cannot get rid of perspective. But he says the only way, ironically, you can reach that perspective is to like go as far back from the natural perspective as you can get. And, and we'll see why. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if this couple with the fact... The, rewind. I'm wondering if... <laughs> so many things. I'm wondering if this is the way in which pure phenomenology works and... He says that this is the way in which you can get the closest to the view from God sort of thing because you are eliminating eliminating with the natural view all possible biases, I want to say, right? Mm. And you're just keeping the pure human view untainted. Yeah, and you're getting rid of all the contingencies. Exactly. Right? Because the matters of fact could be otherwise. You can imagine them being otherwise. They're totally contingent. 
um, where Ed, he's trying to like burn off anything non-essential to arrive at what is essential, mm. right? Because like kind of we're doing two things right now. The one thing we're doing is figuring out what the method is. Mm-hmm. And then the second thing we're doing is figuring out some of the insights that the method gives us. Yes. And so like you kind of got to do both at the same time, I mm-hmm. think, like yeah. in order to understand what's going on. And so the method is the part about, you know, engaging in the reduction and the epoche and bracketing these things. And one of the insights we land on is this stuff about, oh, so like there's the act of consciousness and then the object. And so we have to recognize that those two mm-hmm. are distinct, even though they always happen together and they mm-hmm. can't be separated. It's like, um, you know, I always say the example that Dr. Kogan would say, which is like you have two sides of a pencil. Right. And you could distinguish between the two sides, but they, they're there together. It's the same pencil. Right. It's kind of like that. There's like the, what I think I used to call it in grad school, like the, the complex, con- not mm-hmm. like difficult, but like the, the, the complex, like the, the, the structure of consciousness yeah. has this part. Mm-hmm. Right. And so he says, okay, that's one of the insights we gain. And I guess maybe now we can start to figure out like, what other insights do we mm-hmm. gain? Um, Another insight is, wait a second, if we're recognizing that there is an act of consciousness and an object of consciousness, actually, now there's a third thing, because we've bracketed that that mind-independent object. So there's these these three spheres, these three Mm -hmm. ontological spheres, where it's like, you have the the act of consciousness, which is what he calls imminent, Mm -hmm. because it's intrinsic to consciousness. Mm Mm-hmm. And then there's the object of consciousness. Give me a call from an unknown name, and it's obnoxiously loud <laughs> from Elizabeth. <laughs> so I don't like Elizabeth right now. Um, so you have the imminent, right? It can be broken up into three parts. The imminent part, and then there's the the transcendent part, and that's like number three. Notice mm-hmm. I skipped number two. That's the mind-independent object that you've left behind with the mm-hmm. bracketing. But then, like, there's still something. There's still this object apart from the act. And that one, you know, we'll call, like, the... I think in this translation, he puts, like, the transcendent in quotes. Mm. So it's transcendent to the act of consciousness, but not transcendent to, like, the entire complex of consciousness, which is still imminent. So, like, this is weird and technical, but basically it's, like... You have the things that are in consciousness, which is the act and the object, which is outside the act, but still part of consciousness as a whole. And then you have this supposed third thing, which goes beyond even that, which is like the mind independent scientific object, which we've left behind. And so in phenomenology, we're just left with that imminental complex of the act mm-hmm. and the object that's outside the act, but not outside the whole of consciousness. Okay, let's see if I can. <laughs> I know it's crazy. Let's see if I can, if I can, uh, if I understood that first, right? And the the way you're you're explaining it here. So there is this thing. There is the ocean, which is consciousness in itself. Inside this, there are different players. Let's put it right. There is the, there's me. I know it's not exactly this, but there's me thinking about something. Mm-hmm. There's the act of my consciousness of me interacting with something, thinking, whatever it is that a mm-hmm. consciousness does, right? Yes. And that is what we're left 
with the phenomenological attitude. But we don't have to forget that there are other two things there. One is what I'm thinking of, yep. which is transcendent by definition, which means which is which is a, which exists beyond. beyond that specific moment in which I'm thinking of that thing. And then there is this other separate transcendent yeah, thing. The super transcendent. Exactly, which is can we call it subjectivity if you want? Can we mm. call it just me as the, the, the it's well I'll split it this way. There's my mind besides me thinking about this thing right now. Mm-hmm. That's what the other transcendent thing is, isn't it? The so other we, transcendent thing for him would be like, okay, we're looking at this bottle, mm-hmm. right? Our act, mm-hmm. the, the mental gaze, or even just like think of the bottle, right? Mm-hmm. So the mental, the actual gaze upon the bottle that's I'm imagining, that's the one sphere. Mm-hmm. That's the act. And then the actual bottle that I'm gazing upon in, in my mind's eye, mm-hmm. that is the, the quote-unquote like semi-transcendent mm-hmm. object. And those are both imminent to consciousness. Mm-hmm. The truly transcendent thing would be that like the bottle existing mind independently from me. Okay. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. So I thought we were talking about rather... The transcendental ego. Yes. Yeah. Which yes. is a whole nother thing too. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So yes. So we have the act itself, the bottle which I'm thinking at that moment, and the way I'm thinking at that moment, which is part of it but separate. Yes. And then there is the soup, the the very transcendent thing, which is the bottle itself. Yep. All right. Good. Yep. Now, <laughs> now that we clean that up. So, this means obviously that is this is this phenomenological attitude tipped on the side of consciousness at all time? That is such a good question. And I feel like this is <laughs> an area of dispute. Okay. But I'm going to say yes. Okay. It has to be. Okay. Because to, be, to, to talk about anything beyond consciousness is to completely disregard that like epoche, that reduction we were supposed to do. And it's mm. to be back in the natural attitude that we left in the first place. So does that mean that, and I agree with you, actually, does that mean that uh, phenomenology is, first of all, purely, how can we call it, concerned with human affairs? As opposed to? As opposed to the, what is it like to be a bat or other animals, or is it purely, like, to me, Kantian philosophy is like this, right? Kant is concerned simply with the human experience, period. Is phenomenology also in that line? Okay. To the extent that all we can speak about without assumption is the direct experience of consciousness as we experience it, yes. Okay. However, to the extent that the concept human conjures up biological and therefore transcendent entities Mm -hmm. of which we can say nothing if we're trying to not make any assumptions, then no. Okay. So let me try this again. (laughs) Is phenomenology concerned 
just with the conscious experience of a being capable of expressing consciousness. Yes. Whatever that is. Yes. Okay. Yeah, he'll say, like, one of my... So I had this uh, professor at Duquesne. Her name was uh, Lanai Rodemeyer, who's like a Who's for expert, and she was really good. And she she would always say this line, like, even if God was conscious, these still like these structures would still apply. Mm. And this is precisely why it's not a view from nowhere, because there are facts about consciousness that are absolute, whereas the view from nowhere is like there are no constraints. Okay. So yes. Numerous questions bring yeah. this, uh, this this thing brings in. <laughs> I think. Uh, Absolute, right? And I think that this is the thing that I'm disputing, right? How can this be absolute mm-hmm. if we cannot make any assumptions beyond our specific take yes. within consciousness? Because I, I kind of had a feeling you would say that. Because that's, no, that's, I think that's a natural question there, right? I, yes. I mean, you're telling me that to suspend all sorts of judgment, which I like. Yeah. But then you, make an assumption about those things being <laughs> as absolute, which is kind of... Uh, it's, it's tough. Yeah, it's like, can you do that? Um, I think, like, if I'm going to try and be generous, the response would be to even speculate about the possibility of anything other than this mm-hmm. would be to be leaving the phenomenological attitude because all we're doing here is describing like i'm not saying that other stuff does exist i'm not saying it doesn't exist but are you kind of implying that exists though? this this is like <laughs> the thing because people will be like oh so he's an idealist mm-hmm. and people will be like no he's not an idealist well he's like a kantian style idealist no but not exactly so you have these back and forths so he's not saying only consciousness in this sense exists he's saying all we can know with absolute certainty is that this thing exists. So I'm not even going to make a comment about anything else. There's enough work I got to do here in Mm -hmm. terms of like describing what presentifies, Mm -hmm. you know, itself in my experience. So, and the other, the other question, maybe I should ask that before. Uh, Because when you're hearing about phenomenology, if you're hearing about phenomenology for the first time, for example, right? Mm -hmm. One of the things that can be confusing is, are we talking metaphysics here or are we talking epistemology here right that yeah that is a great question is it is it about the existence of things or is this about (laughs) the way we know stuff right because that's different right i teach my my students all the time these are two different things here what is the claim here which is a metaphysical claim or is an epistemological claim it blends both of those things (laughs) and i've always had difficulty with this like when i was in grad school i was like okay so on the one hand it's kind of like metaphysics but on the other hand, it's like, no, we're, we're moving beyond metaphysics. On the other hand, it's like, no, we're doing epistemology. But it's not just epistemology because it is about the basic structures of things. So me personally, I think phenomenology is, is a blending of metaphysics. I would say it's in some sense, I'm going to say a weird thing. It's epistemology treated as metaphysics. Okay. And perhaps metaphysics treated as epistemology. I was about to say, from my again, you're the expert here. From my understanding, the two things are one. 
yeah. in phenomenology. There is no yeah. distinction. Literally, it's the same thing. Yeah. There is no distinction between the two, which for some can be problematic, right? Yes. Because all of a sudden we're making claims that's supposed to be noetic. Instead, they are existential almost, right? Mm. Um, yeah. And vice versa. And if, I mean, you can accept that, of course. There is a way in which... There's a deep way in which I think this is true, mm -hmm. that these two things can be one and the same. Mm -hmm. But I think that the that what happens when you do that is that metaphysics tend to dissolve into the epistemological aspect of stuff. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think I have kind of just come to accept that, mm -hmm. that if the goal is the presuppositionless thing, then maybe... Because even like think about normally when you're not doing phenomenology, like it's kind of hard to teach pure metaphysics, right? Or Very pure difficult. epistemology. Like you're always kind of yeah. running into the other. Yeah. And I feel like he's just picking up on that and being like, all right, let's just kind of accept that. And I think that's the reason why yeah. later on the analytics are able to hold on to phenomenology because they don't like metaphysics, right? So what they will oh, yeah, yeah. what they will do is so they claim <laughs> what they will do is like this is not metaphysics this is epistemology so we're good yes. <laughs> this is good enough right yeah but I think that there is a level in which it is confusing right mm -hmm. because we don't know if we're talking about again how things are reality or knowledge <laughs> right 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 and so it's like okay a couple insights we've come across one the distinction between act and object of consciousness. Two, the acknowledgement of, as a result of that previous insight, there being three distinct realms, the being mm -hmm. the act, the object, and then the transcendent, truly object, mm -hmm. right? Another thing we can come to realize, and this is where it starts to get into something a little more beyond, I don't know, just a little more interesting if, if this is too abstract for people, but he, he says there's this exercise you can do it's called eidetic reduction, right? Or eidetic variation. And the idea, and this is, again, like Descartes with the wax. You think of something, and then you think of it in a slightly different way. And then you think of it in a different way. And you do this, like, a lot, right? <laughs> and then after, and, and the difference could be, like, maybe you rotate it. You move around it. You move around it. You imagine it's a different color. Uh, you, you imagine squash it, it in your head. You squash it. You eat it. You imagine it's made of a different material. Material, and I mean that in loose sense. <laughs> um, and he says, "Is there anything stays the that same. stays the same amongst all those different things? Because if there is, you've landed upon like an absolute structure of consciousness." And so. What is one thing that stays in every single variation of the thing you're thinking of? Spatial perspective. And he doesn't mean space in the scientific sense of like, there's a space out there and like it's when I'm not existing. He means just like the thing we experience as, um, how would you say? stuff arranged in a spot he's not saying that spaceness is there outside of me just like that there's different parts i could distinguish on on the plane so to speak so he says no matter what you do to this chair you're imagining or this like sandwich you're imagining you cannot escape the fact that you are 
always already viewing it from one perspective only. You can't ever view it from more than that or none. Yeah, and which is this idea that you're situated, right? In yes. a specific way when you are um, appreciating <laughs> or when you are thinking of or when you are you know, in the act of consciousness, to use probably the technical term, right? Yeah. Um, and this being situated is given to you by you having a specific perspective, right? And nothing else. Um, does that mean that, well, you're saying that this is the only thing that that keeps the, the spatial stuff, right? That's the only thing that stays the same, right? It's, it's one of the things that yeah. we can say. It's It's not the only thing, but it's like an absolute fact Consciousness is colored by this fact that you only ever get one spatial perspective. Mm-hmm. Now, um, the more we talk about this thing, right, the more I go back to what we said at the beginning, that he's not talking about one person. Right. He's talking about everybody. Now, does that mean that those experiences, those, this ocean that I call, that we call consciousness at the beginning, at the beginning, it was it at the beginning of this episode, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, does that mean that we're all participating of uh, what do we call it? Universal consciousness that's there, and we're bathing in the same ocean mm. from different perspective. Is there one, you know, I think as Avicenna, this this intellect that's out there and we kind of bait in there from different perspective mm-hmm. or each one of us has his own consciousness. You know what I think he would say? <laughs> you can't ask that question. <laughs> of course. Of course you would say that. But is it... Do, what do I think? Um, so... I think he's saying each person is their own. If I had to say something even though he would say, no, 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 you can't say that. I, and I'm wondering though, we haven't talked about this at all, but Husserl is the the champion of intersubjectivity, right? Oh, right, right, which we should, yeah, which means, as we've said in the past, not merely a personal individual subject, but things that are shared across all subjects. It's like the objective form of subjectivity. And I'm wondering if there is something similar with consciousness there. Hmm. Is there interconscious <laughs> something stuff, right? Because it seems... That goes beyond just sharing the conditions, you mean? Yes, mm. I'm wondering if that's possible. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? Yeah, right? Like, because clearly people talk about this idea of um, the collective consciousness and unconsciousness, mm-hmm. right? And there's a kind of psychological connotation to that. But if you think about that broadly, you're saying, what if consciousness is like, like you have two legs mm-hmm. and two arms? Mm-hmm. What if consciousness is this one thing with eight billion arms? Mm-hmm. You know, or more than that, if you include animals or something like that, um, that I don't know what right. That kind of to me is almost like a pantheism. Yeah, right. That's, a, that's exactly what I was thinking. In about. the sense that it's everything is one thing manifesting in different ways. So you mm-hmm. you come to this like it's going to sound contradictory, but this like plural monistic picture, mm-hmm. right? The the property plur, property pluralism at the very least, or something. Oh, it's the idea that there is just one, yeah, and then it manifests itself in different ways. In different ways, right? Yeah, it's like think of, I mean, 
not a perfect analogy, but it's like kids are manifestations of the parents, and they're different kids, yeah. but they're manifestation of the same right, parents. Right. And I know it goes beyond the scope of what he says and everything, but I was thinking since he talks about this intersubjective space, the more we talk about the fact of, of, about consciousness and the more we talk about the fact that, well, but wait a minute, he's not talking about the individual, he's talking about all of us, this situation, even the fact that we're situated, but still inside consciousness, it makes me think about it almost as a, as a space that might be bigger hmm. than what he was willing to admit. Right. And I'm wondering if we, if we want to be limited uh, from what he says, not in a bad sense, meaning that if we think that his way is the only grounded way mm -hmm. and what we're talking about is just, you know, kind of out there. I think, I think uh, you would have to go beyond this, but you could definitely use this as a starting point. Mm -hmm. like, and this is why, like the thing we're doing, this is the pure phenomenology, yeah. right? The phenomenological philosophy, which we haven't even got to yet, is like when you kind of do phenomenological stuff, in ways that don't only talk about the most abstract, basic, a priori forms of, of consciousness. Maybe we should talk about that. <laughs> yeah, so I mean... <laughs> to make a couple of examples there. Yeah, Husserl does this when he talks about the body and how we come to be not just a body, right, but we are embodied, mm -hmm. right? Consciousness as lived is not just these floating forms, right? He's like, I got to talk about these because these ground things, but really... Yeah, it's dope. We're embodied consciousness, meaning when you experience stuff, it's always experienced in relation to some bodily orientation you have, right? And like when you when you grab an object or when you look at something, like he'll talk about this idea. Here's a practical thing. Uh, when you look at, I don't know if this was Husserl or one of the secondary big guys on Husserl, like Moran or Zahavi or something, but this idea that when you look at the floor and there's water on it, you'll say, oh, it looks wet. Mm -hmm. But wet isn't a look, right? Yeah. Wet is a textual thing. So yeah. he says one thing that everyday embodied consciousness does is it blends your sensory experiences. And again, he's not making talking about senses, material. He's just saying, like, or when I pick up the cappuccino, right? It looks foamy, mm -hmm. right? But foamy is a textual thing. So we have yeah. these interwoven sensory schemata, he calls them. And he just does this for everything, right? He, he starts with pure consciousness, and then he goes, all right, but what's it like to be in the world? What's it like to move your arm in this space or to mm -hmm. pick up this object? And I'm thinking, um, what about the experience of your body in itself, right? Mm. Of the body as a whole. Of your, well, of the body, I should say, right? Yeah. Because I think, if I remember correctly, he makes this distinction between the lived body. Yeah. Just, I think it was Lebe in, you know, Liebe in, mm -hmm. uh, in Lebe, I think, in German. The Liebkörper. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, and then the, the, the actual flesh almost, right? The, yeah. the, the body in, 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 in its material stuff, right? In its material expression. The difference is uh, that same professor, uh, Rodemeyer used to say, the one is the thing that makes a noise when mm -hmm. you knock on it, whereas the other one is the thing you live through. Yeah. Right? And embodiment isn't just, I am a material thing. 
yeah. right? Because your arm is not like the way you experience your arm and your hand is not the same as the way you experience this table. Mm-hmm. Like there's no inside the table, right? There's an inside, so to speak, of my arm. And I understand and approach the world in relation to my body. So like if I look at a room, it's not just like the disembodied spirit. And this is why people who say like, oh, he is, he thinks there's this isolated subject is wrong because he mm-hmm. like specifically talks about this. You're not just like disembodied spirit looking at the room. You're always understanding it in relation to your body. Like how far is this from my arm? Do I sense it in a weird way? Like, how could I lift my body? How far is that for me? Like, how quickly would it take me to get from here to there? You know, things like that. It's always in relation to how you move and how you feel things. Um, and that, even though we can think about consciousness and abstraction, and we should do that, the next level is, all right, now how do we talk about this every day phenomenologically? And I'm thinking that we obviously have, well, more or less obviously have a, a specific relation to our body right um as you're saying because we measure things through it right it's yes. and all those things and i'm thinking of later merleau Ponty, for example will pick up on this and he will start thinking about all these experiences that people had the, the people that lost their limbs for example have right yes yes the phantom limb kind of syndrome there right where you have such a connection to that part of your body Mm-hmm. that your amputated leg itches. You're still feeling stuff. You're still working through those experiences, even if the material aspect of that is not there anymore, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, You are still embodied, even if you don't have that body. Exactly. So yeah. you still, it's like, it's almost it's still there, but it's not there, which I find fascinating, this, this, this aspect of things, right? And... Uh, and I'm wondering, again, what that means beyond, uh, beyond those circles, if you want. I mean, it gives the body a privileged position right. in the world, right? Because it's not like other material things. And th- there's all these weird little things that are super interesting. Like when you touch the table, you feel the table pressing back on your finger, right? Mm-hmm. But it's like a one-sided experience. If you touch your own finger... It's this really weird experience yes. where you feel it from both ends, where you were at once the experiencer and the experienced. And that's like clearly one reason why the body is different from other material bodies. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm also thinking that, so why you have this access, almost we can say, of bodily experience with the phantom limb thing, mm-hmm. with the phantom limb thing, there's the opposite happening in certain situations. I can think of situations when you have objectified your body so much mm. that he feels almost like this transcendent object of which we were talking about. Like you're just floating above it almost, like it's just a material thing. Yes, and I think there are specific, how can we call it, um, attitudes towards your body that almost lead to certain disorders, right? Mm, like abuse. Uh, yeah, and in the sense that you're abusing your own body. I'm thinking specifically um, some some 
disorders, uh, some eating disorders, right? Mm. Somebody who's anorexic or bulimic, right? Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, you're ceasing to understand your body as a part of your conscious experience. And mm -hmm. you're just understanding it as a, almost a separate object that you want to mold and I, the make into a specific way that yeah. it's separated. And that's a problem. That become when when you create this disconnect. Yeah, that's where the issues start. And that that's you know kind of on its face proof of the fact that consciousness is embodied. Because when you disembody mm -hmm. consciousness, you have these like disorders. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's that's definitely the case. Yeah, and I mean, he also does this thing where he privileges the body in the sense that it's the the embodied consciousness that defines what things are. Mm -hmm. which is so interesting. And like me and you have talked about this a little bit, but he'll say like, when I grab the bottle, my understanding of what the bottle is, is 100% in relation to my embodied experience of it. And it has to be under certain conditions. Like there are optimal conditions under which objects are constituted, mm -hmm. right? Or like made to be what they are. And so for example... If you grab a coffee cup when you have a burn on your finger, you're like, oh, something's wrong. That's not the regular thing, mm -hmm. right? Because the regular thing is the thing as constituted by normal, optimal conditions. It's like the way soup tastes when you're fever rather than when it tastes. Exactly. Or it's like when we walk into this room with the lights off, we say, oh, the room is different because the lights are off. Whereas the room with the lights on, we don't think of that as like a separate characteristic. That's just yeah. part of how we've constituted the room. Yeah, yeah. which is again gives a gives the body a privileged perspective. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, but I'm thinking, is there a way in which the body is just a vessel hmm. for this? You know, I'm I'm thinking, is the body just a glove that you hmm. wear, right? And I don't. I think no, actually. But is it just a glove for him, where consciousness is inhabiting it, and it's the glove that you need to use, otherwise you cannot access stuff, right? It's a very important glove, but still, it's a glove, right? <laughs> it's like the most. It's like the Michael Jackson diamond stud glove. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's the only thing you need to wear that, otherwise your experience your hmm. your experience is not going to be. You're not going to feel anything, right? I think I would say no, like mm -hmm. you do, because. Much like you could distinguish between the act and object of consciousness but cannot separate them, you could distinguish between the spirit and the body but cannot distinguish, uh, dis separate them mm -hmm. totally. So I don't think he thinks it's this thing that sometimes you have that you can take off hypothetically. It's like integral to how it actually plays out. Mm. And there's no removing it. Okay, okay. So... um question that comes to mind while hearing this right and i'm not even sure again if he talks about this kind of stuff or not would he say that so again he's talking generally about mm -hmm. uh, consciousness general in in general not us specifically but the moment you bring the body in there right then at that moment you are definitely bringing up for lack of a better word a subjective experience in place right it is your body that's situated in a specific way and it gives you the experience of stuff. He's saying you're not unique. All human beings work this way, but 
your body is what gives you yes. the access to this, right? Yes. Um, so it, in a sense, it's like shared, but also unique. Exactly. Yeah. Given that fact, right, the moment we start thinking, and you're saying at the same time that you're, you are a blend of both things, your body and your consciousness, we should call it, right? Mm-hmm. So you're not a glove, right? Your you're body's not a, not a glove, right? Yeah. Those two things make you. What happens when you die? <laughs> I don't know. What, what happens? What happens What happens when your body not there anymore? Uh, I don't know. It's And I don't know what he... Again, I have... I think the response would be... We're going to... We cannot talk <laughs> about that. Um, I don't think there's like disembodied... Like uh, post no afterlife floating around, yeah. It's not like Descartes, where he would say like, "Oh, yeah, that's the that's body's it. there, but like the consciousness can subsist without it." It's not like that. It doesn't work that way, right? Yeah. So that's maybe the would you say is the biggest difference between him and Descartes? I, th- yeah, the biggest difference is that Descartes kind of, I guess, explicitly talks about the independence of the mind. Not in the meditations, but in like the the letter with the mm-hmm. the princess or the, whatever the correspondence. Um, whereas Husserl is like, I'm not making that judgment. I don't. I don't think. I like. He's not going to say either way, but I think he lands on you can't. He's not a dualist. He's a dualist in the sense. This is a controversial question that people are going to hate <laughs> me for, but I would say yes and no. He's not a dualist in the traditional sense of thinking that the mind and the body are made out of two mutually exclusive, exclusive substances, or let's say two not dependent on each other, codependent substances. But he is a dualist in the sense that he acknowledges the distinction between the experiencing spirit or consciousness and things that aren't that. So he, I would say he's a kind of property dualist, it seems. Okay. Even though that's not a popular thing to say, I think that's the only conclusion that you can draw. Of course, he draws a distinction from the outset between consciousness and the object of consciousness, between embodiment and things that aren't embodied. So there's a, there's a, a property dualism, but there's not like a substance dualism, nor is there a substance anything. <laughs> of course. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Which I hated, by the way. Like, I, I'm the one... It's funny. Like, I look at me saying this. I used to hate when people said this because I came into phenomenology not through Husserl, but through Heidegger. Mm-hmm. And I would ask these kinds of questions and people would say that to me. And then I would go to the Husserlians and ask these questions and they would say that kind of thing to me. And I'm like, what? I would just get frustrated. <laughs> but after a, while, after a long, hard time of working through it, it's you like, I get it. I get it. That said, I think there's a lot more leniency that Husserlian phenomenologists grant that the Heideggerians do not. Okay. So, like, maybe a little bit. Okay. We could delve into this. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I was actually going there to okay. begin with. So do you want to... Sure. No, no, go ahead. Go so, ahead. I mean, we mentioned Husserl. You mentioned Merleau-Ponty briefly. Um, so then there's this guy who <laughs> was a student of Husserl who liked the thing he was doing. Yeah. Mostly. But then 
basically accused Husserl of like doing this abstract Cartesian thing, which he wasn't. I think he's wrong. I love Heidegger, <laughs> but I think this is wrong. Um, and he says, no, we have to like figure out what it's like to be human, what it is like to experience, which people don't like the word, as such, right? Like, like what is it like to be a human and like what is human being what is being in general mm -hmm. so whereas Husserl was more of an epistemologist Heidegger was an ontologist because mm -hmm. he was talking about being right so this is why when you look at both Heidegger and Sartre being in time being in nothingness it says like an essay in phenomenological ontology yeah right whereas Husserl doesn't do that no no of course not and first question obviously yeah on the outset Aren't those people phenomenal? I mean, existentialists. Why are we calling them phenomenologists? So it's like existential <laughs> phenomenology. All right. People say. All right. Um, which Husserl was not. So so existential phenomenology, I think, would be an example of what Husserl calls phenomenological philosophy, okay. but not pure phenomenology. Okay. And okay. I think they would agree with that. Okay. So you were talking about the fact that um, Heidegger is an ontologist. He does ontology, right? Yeah. What is being? what is being and, and such. Now, question number one there. <laughs> one of one million. One of one million. So with Heidegger, we know that he takes, as you just said, a slightly different approach to this. And he's interested in experiencing what it means to be or understanding what being is mm -hmm. or whatever else <laughs> he does. Um, so... Isn't that kind of what Husserl was doing? And just uh, <laughs> in a more comprehensible way? No, but aside from, from understanding it, right? I think that the, the project is the same. Yes. And I think that they're using just different terms. Yeah, so it's, and they people, call it... People will not like this. Right, they'll but, kill each other. Yeah. Uh, they call it existential phenomenology, phenomenological ontology. Sometimes you hear it called hermeneutic phenomenology because it's about meaning. Um, if you ask me personally, like, what is Heidegger doing and how does it relate to Husserl? I would say Heidegger is just doing a phenomenology of the natural attitude. Okay. Heidegger is doing a phenomenology of what Husserl calls the natural attitude, whereas Husserl is saying, let's like get out of that first. Okay, so Heidegger is even going even more meta. He's doing the meta of the thing that Husserl wanted to meta out of, exactly. but he's staying in it. Exactly. exactly. So Husserl's like, in order to do phenomenology, let's take the meta step out of the natural attitude to figure out the most fundamental structures in abstraction, conceptually. Whereas Heidegger is saying, let's stick within the natural attitude of what it's like to be and live as human and figure out the metastructures of that without stepping outside of it. So just to give somebody who's never heard of Heidegger an idea, what the hell is he doing? <laughs> so, yeah, so, yeah. So what is it? What is it that? And I know it's a lot, right? Yeah. But I'm saying, can we give like a snippet of what is it? that he's trying to accomplish, right? Because doing this phenomenology with a natural attitude, right? Mm -hmm. What does that mean? And why is it, why does he have to do with existential issues, right? Oh, right, right. Why is that? And which eventually would translate with Sartre mm. in real 
like in, in existentialism in a, in a, even in, in a more how can we say direct way right mm. and eventually will translate in my mind at least into humanism eventually and i know the connection is super broad there no but it, it makes sense it makes sense um so they're asking different questions mm-hmm. whose rule is saying what can we know with absolute certainty and he's doing that in a in a descriptive way okay and he's saying like what are the like structures the necessary structures eidetic of consciousness in order to do that he's looking at a certain set of things where heidegger is saying he's not starting with that he's not doing a phenomenology of consciousness per se okay although he's not not doing that i will contend he's starting with the question what is being and approaching the question of what is being from a phenomenological lens so what does he mean by what is being I, I, i've been talking to my class about this the the first week not heidegger but like in general what is in being? general we do essential properties right what i say like what is a definition mm-hmm. say, what's a description of what something is and i'm like what what is that mm-hmm. right what it is and so we say being at a base level is just like isness mm-hmm. right what it is that makes something what it is Right, so we talk about the being of the water bottle, or the being of the computer, or the being of the human, or the meta step is being in general. When we don't ask about the being of any particular thing, or particular specific kind of thing, but like the the isness of isness itself. So he starts with that kind of. What does it mean to be? What does it mean to be? Literally, mm-hmm. that's exactly what he's doing. Which can we translate it in? What does it mean to exist? No, <laughs> <laughs> I know it's no. I was trying I to make it easier. Froze because I it, was trying to make it easier. But yeah, that is not all possible. the linguistic death matches. I know. This is like because there's like existentia. And then existens, and there's all these different <laughs> versions. Essentia. Um, but it's his fault, partially. <laughs> so basically, he'll say no, because existence has this connotation of, again, mind-independent material things. Mm-hmm. But if you mean it in a loose sense... Yeah, I'm just, yes. just trying to... Yes, to, to, no, like... To, so he's asking questions like, again, what does it mean to be? Yes. What does it mean for a human being to actually yes exist (laughs) you gotta whisper it like that people are gonna murder it's so crazy it really is like i know i'm I'm saying this ten thousand times but it's really hostile and it it like turned me off of a lot of this academic stuff because i'm like you you guys traumatized by this because it like it totally made me not want to pursue this stuff any further of course and i was like what are you guys doing like aren't you trying to figure out the truth and shouldn't you be bridge building and not just like of course not. What are you talking about? Right. <laughs> so anyway, he says, what is being? Mm-hmm. And he says, okay, how can we figure out what being is? Well, phenomenologically speaking, how does being present itself to us? How does being appear? Yeah. And being appears to us through specific beings. Yes. Right? Because we never experience abstract isness in itself. Yes. I experience like the being of a bottle, the being of you, the being of the desk. And he says, okay, 
So beings present themselves, mm-hmm. and they have a little bit of being itself in them. And like, mm-hmm. if only we could access. And he goes, how do we access them? Well, they they become accessible to an accessor, mm-hmm. which is us, mm-hmm. which is the human being. Yeah. So in order to figure out maybe <laughs> what being <laughs> is, we have to use the mode of access of the human being to experience specific beings in their being. And that's how he talks. Yeah. And like it, it makes sense if I you know. sit with it. I know very well. But it's crazy. Yeah. So plain language. Yeah. He's saying <laughs> that there is this thing that's called being. Yes. It's called this abstract thing that gets into things and makes them what they are. Yes. And that's out there. Yeah. So he's he thinks that that's there. And he's saying, how can I actually access that? Yes. And he's saying, I can access that only through the way he presents itself in the bottle, in me, in the phone, whatever it is. Yep. And then he says, but that's not it. There needs to be somebody there who actually is able to access that, which is me. Yes, which is a different being. being. Exactly, which is me. Yes. And only because I am made in a specific way, I can grasp what's in this thing that eventually will lead me to that thing over there. Exactly. Okay. May, to make it even more clear, possibly. Okay, okay. Religious metaphor. Okay. There is God. Yes, and God is presented to us, let's say, only through the individual souls of things. That's good. Yeah, yeah. Now, in order for me to access God, I can access it only through this little individual souls. Yep. But if the little souls were there by themselves without me actually accessing them, I will still know there will still not be any possibility to access God. So in order to access God, I need to exist those little individual souls need to exist, and those are the getaway to God. <laughs> yes. Okay. That was, a good, that was a good analogy. I like that. The one I was thinking about, which is like less accurate, but is like, how do you access greenness through green things? Yes. How do you access uh, tallness through tall things? You don't access the form itself to use Platonic language, which people hate because they're like, Heidegger's not a Platonist. Um, you only access yes. the particulars. <laughs> Anyone hear that? Um, so, yes, in order to access being itself, you have to have a mode of access, the human being, that accesses particular beings in the world. So, now that we have established that, yes, is you're claiming... Mm-hmm. in my opinion correctly, that Heidegger is a phenomenologist. Yes. Because of how he pursues this. Yes. Yeah. We have kind of established, I hope, in the past hour plus minutes, <laughs> that there are certain characteristics that make phenomenology, phenomenology what it is. Mm-hmm. There's a certain being about phenomenology. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and one of these things is the epoche. Mm-hmm. Where is that in Heidegger? Because that if it's the not question. there, yeah. then we're in trouble here. Okay. So the epoche is in Heidegger. 
It's just in a different form. It's not the epoche of the natural attitude completely because he's not getting rid of... He's not bracketing. He's thing. not bracketing the world of things. Okay. He's doing an epoche within the natural attitude. And it's specifically the epoche of the general thesis. Okay. Like Husserl, he is bracketing questions regarding whether these things actually exist independently of our experience of okay. them. Okay. Okay. Yes. So he's like, I'm only going to take how they appear to me along with their values and what happens and what it's like to be a human, but I'm not going to say anything about their like material, physical status or whether that's even a thing. Okay. So okay. he says it's not realism or idealism. It's just that's his epoche. So he's just saying he's being agnostic towards the Absolutely. existence of those things. Yes. And independently from us. Yes. Humans. Which Husserl does in addition to then doing another exactly. thing. Exactly. Yes. So, so Heidegger is somewhat simplifying, no simplifying, it's taking less out mm -hmm. rather than Husserl. Okay. Good. <laughs> <laughs> now that we've got that across. Yes. So he can be considered an, an, uh, a phenomenologist because of that. And I... Again, we've talked about this before. I mm -hmm. follow you there. Now, you're claiming also the Sartre mm. is a phenomenologist. I don't see that. That is the most difficult one. And I feel like we'll have to do a continuation of this at some point. But the the last thing I'll say about Heidegger before we preliminarily go on to this other <laughs> thing is like the way he goes about pursuing being is not only accessing beings, but he says, because we're the mode of access of the beings, we have to first understand ourselves. So it's not like we're, we're only examining the beings that present themselves. <laughs> we're examining the structure of the thing for which the things present itself. So we have to look to the human being first in order to then know how the other beings present themselves to the humans in order to understand them. <laughs> I, hate I just hate it. I know. No, but I know what you're saying, though. I understand. Which is why he comes up with things like, okay, what? and he has this whole word, like Dasein, which is the German expression for like the there being, the mm -hmm. being that is there. Mm -hmm. And he's like, well the whole book first of all he never gets to being itself exactly. surprise <laughs> being in time he only gets to human being and its relation to time never gets to it's being like itself 500 pages it, it's like so, maybe even longer i'm going to say and he basically this is where the existentialist part comes in right because yeah. he's like oh being human means you're being in the world and i don't literally mean thrown in there you're thrown right he doesn't literally mean you're a spatial object within an objective world because that's, mm -hmm. that's saying too much. Out. Exactly. He's just saying by in, he means like you're involved with stuff. Yeah. There's all these interrelations of meaning and you're like almost co-founded with things. Exactly. Right? Like you exist. The world is not like the earth. It's a, an underlying set of expectations and beliefs about, you know, how things, it's literally a ground for intelligibility. It's like f this fluid things where you're floating and yeah. you don't know where you end and when other things end. At the risk of getting stabbed by someone, it's kind <laughs> you're of... You're really worried about it's this. It's kind of like culture. 
Oh, okay. I'm gonna say you're coming around. I'm after gonna three say years. <laughs> there's a there's a kind of sociological element to it. Because, and I don't mean culture in like the narrow sense. I mean in the sense that there are shared systems of belief. And so he'll have this whole thing about like an object only uh, presents itself to you as making sense in relation to some world. So like, why do we know what this bottle is? Well because we have all these underlying beliefs about like what liquid is and what a water is and how it relates to my body and what it does. The better example, picture uh, a syringe is the example I always think of. Like, because there's the world that we all share yep. by virtue of being subjects, right? Mm -hmm. And like what it is to be human. But then there's all these sub-worlds, like yeah. the medical world, the fashion world, the business world, the this world. So there's like a, a very metaphorical element to Heidegger, which I think is cool. Um, which connects to some other, like, philosophy-adjacent things, mm -hmm. I would say. Um, but he'll talk about, like, you know, let's say you have a, a syringe, right? The syringe is isness, its being, literally shows up differently to someone who is from the medical world mm -hmm. versus someone who's, like, in the drug addict world, yeah. right? Or in the in the patient world it's like yeah. you this object appears and it's not merely what it does it's it's like it's literally what the thing is is different for you depending on which world you belong yep. to yeah absolutely no no absolutely and that's like that. I, I think it's pretty pretty clear right yeah uh, because if i'm a doctor that is yeah in the medical world and that thing is not that i just use it different than the drug addict it represents yes the the being in a different way i yes. hate doing that but yes you hate it. and and in a way mm -hmm. even though heidegger is like super technical complex not the way we think this kind of stuff is actually like very everyday and practical absolutely right because like oh yeah the medical world it's like a metaphorical way of looking at the world absolutely absolutely and i i will add again as much as i i display you know <laughs> the fact that i am not a fan right negative being yeah i it's not necessarily true actually a lot of things that i think they're very similar to what what he thinks mm. um but it, what i cannot get over is the hyper technicality yeah. of the language that to me is, is at least partially unnecessary right mm, okay i know that you think that that's helps with being precise yeah and yeah. i understand that yeah but i understand that too much precision is not <laughs> is good yeah i think some people do that like we've had this conversation i think that for example levinas i don't like levinas because i read it and i'm like this is bordering on poetry for me yeah because it, you're saying a thing, but then you're like, I'm not saying this thing. And then it's it's not ontology, but I'm using ontological language. And I'm saying, you, well, I'm not bound by the laws of non-contract. Like, that kind of stuff does bother me. But you know that that's Heidegger's fault. We had that because of him. Well, I'm going to say he was good at it. And some <laughs> people are bad at it. But I feel like we rushed through the Heidegger stuff a lot. And we have to, right? Because we don't have enough time. Yep. But there's other existential stuff like being towards death right thrownness into the world without any imbued instructions I, I think maybe this deserves an episode on its own mm. uh maybe 
either on Heidegger or on, on being in time in itself. Yeah, or even going to Sartre, because you mentioned, yeah. like, how is that guy? Because in order for him to posit, like, human negation and anxiety towards these things, right, and this deep dread, doesn't that hinge on you believing in some kind of outside of yourself? Yeah. Right? Yeah. That kind of ultimately trumps everything. Mm-hmm. Um, beyond your particular life? And I think that's a good question. So I feel like we need to hone in on more of these existential themes and how they relate to phenomenology. We will eventually need to do it. I think that when we get around... (laughs) When we get there. When we get there, I think that it might be interesting for us eventually to have a mini-series within within the podcast. Mm-hmm. Where we talk about authors and books, hmm. rather than than just general things that we that we've done. Maybe they can be specials, right? Yeah, I'm thinking a cool idea. I could see it now. Right, we just have an episode like specifically on Heidegger and Sartre, and you call it "Being Time and Nothingness" and nothing, or something yeah, like that. That could be that could be cool, or maybe there could be a special episode only for. Hmm. Selected few people. Who knows? Oh, he's hinting at something. <laughs> so that's it. Like we've we're probably a little bit over time. Um, yep. But this stuff is like super tough. I hope that was at least somewhat enlightening and, and intelligible, right? Intelligible, interesting. Um, also, <laughs> disclaimer: don't do it at home without <laughs> the help of a professional. Do not read Heidegger by yourself. It's like the warning, right? Do yes. not, yeah. Do not do that by yourself. I think that there are some things of Husserl that you can start to read by yourself. Mm. Maybe. Yeah, I mean, but I, I think... But I will still suggest you... There's mm. so many lectures online you could check out, right? Yeah. Like, there's so many courses you could do, and I totally encourage you to do this, because yeah. why not? Yes, so while I encourage you, definitely dip your feet into the phenomenological world mm-hmm. through Husserl <laughs> or somebody else... Do not just go and buy Being in Time and start reading it mm-hmm. because there will be a waste of money and you'll hate <laughs> philosophy forever. Not because it's bad, because mm-hmm. even I have to admit that it's not bad, yeah. but it's difficult and you need a guide. You know you're just creating a taboo that many people <laughs> are going to be like, well, I'm, I'm going to go do it. Exactly. Now. So now you're going to see sales of <laughs> Being oh in Time God. skyrocket. Imagine. <laughs> and if you do, Notice, so there's so there's different translations. Of course. Which one would you say, would you recommend? So the one that's like the one is the, the Macquarie and Robinson one. So now we're recommending a translation for a book <laughs> that we're recommending them not to read. If you do. Very Heideggerian. Because there's also a Stambau <laughs> translation, and that was actually the first one I did. But like upon doing both, the... The Macquarie and Robinson one is like is 90% it, is it better. More intelligible? Maybe there's like a couple things that you can borrow from the other one, but like, no, go with the. Gotcha. Go with that one. Go with that one. Okay. So by the time you're listening to this, you will be in fall, full fall mode. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's going to be a couple of, a couple of interesting um, outings that we might have later. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, we'll give you news of that maybe. In the next episode, it will yeah. be closer to to this. Where we're hoping to have a an amplenaire event. Yes, uh, but more on that yes. later. Well, thank you for being here. Yeah, I'll see you guys around. Have fun and stay warm. Do some stuff. Yep. Bye. Mm-hmm.